ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing the world of classic cinema. As always, I'm your host, Kristen Lopez. I'm Drea Clark. And I'm Samantha Ellis. And this week, we have a very special guest joining us on the podcast. We have author, film festival coordinator, all around awesome dude who can rock a fedora like it's nobody's business, Alan K. Rohde. Alan. How are you? Uh, hi, guys. I'm doing as well as can be expected. Um, you know, I, I try to make sure that the house stays a house, not the Fuhrer bunker. Uh, uh, but I think we're all hoping that everybody else is staying safe and staying healthy and hunkering down and trying to live as normal a life as possible. So that's what I'm trying to do. And I hope that's what you're trying to do. But I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, anytime that you want to be on the podcast is a, is a happy day for me. It's been a while, a uh, long time coming. I've been trying to get you on and scheduling has been very iffy, but it worked out. But Alan, for people who don't know who you are, which is shocking because they should, uh, can you give us a little background on, on your classic film, Bonafides? My classic film, Bonafides. Let me let me reach out here and take my credentials out. I feel like... <laughs> here, you know. Exactly. How are you an it, expert it's, in it's, the field? Explain uh, yourself. It's Rody, Alan Rody. No. Um, and now I have my cat walking across the keyboard. Thank you, dear. I have to move him. Um, oh, I got interested in classic film uh, and film generally at a young age. Uh, I grew up and my mother's side of the family was a show business family. My mother was born in Hollywood in 1922, and she was uh, an extra in our gangs. And she was at Ben Barr's acting school and had some sort of relationship with Jack Carson and knew a lot of people in the business. Uh, her mother, my grandmother, had a radio show and used to have people like Charlie Chase uh, were friends. And uh, her second husband was a fellow by the name of Alphonse Corelli, whose real name was Alphonse Newman, that he changed for artistic reasons. And he came to Hollywood in the 20s was a violinist and a composer. He was uh, one of the assistant musical directors at Universal under David Brookman and was in a lot of movies with uh, silent movies like The King of Kings and was in with Greta Garbo and so forth. So I kind of had the classic movie DNA. And back in the day when you had to watch uh, movies on network television and you had like five or six channels and everything was cut for TV with commercials. And if you wanted to see, for example, on the waterfront, you needed to stay up for the late, late show at, at one, one thirty in the morning. So uh, I grew up watching movies, knowing some of the people in the movies and cataloging that. And then my life took a really circuitous route through a career in in the Navy after I got drafted and traveled the world, did all kinds of things. And then about, oh gosh, 20 years ago, 18 years ago, I started writing uh, for a site called Film Monthly and started doing research. I got involved in the film festival circuit. Uh, I made a friend called Arthur Lyons, who was a mystery writer and a Palm Springs councilman in Palm Springs, California. And I started helping him with his film festival back in 2001. And after he passed on in 08, I took over producing the festival, which I've done every year since then. And uh, I've written two books, one on the character actor Charles McGraw and another one on Michael Curtiz. I'm working on another book now. So I've, I've kind of gotten to the point in my life where uh, I've returned to where I originally started uh, about 20 years ago. And it's been, um, it's been a really fun ride that I hope continues uh, indefinitely. That is awesome. Uh well, and, uh, Dre, we're I was just going to say, I like any bio that starts with any family connection back to our gang. So really, you had me from you had me from go. And then 
for me, Palm Springs connection because that's my hometown. Oh, really? Yeah, really? well, Palm Desert, technically. My grandparents lived across the street from John Ford. So There you go. There you go. Well, yeah, the- I love that the connection. Old, the old Palm Springs, which was the playground for Hollywood. And really, truly. Now, and you see streets named after Kirk Douglas and, and Buddy Rogers and all of that when you go down desert from Palm Springs. But the... Uh, excuse me, the Camelot theaters, which are now called, it's now called the Palm Springs Cultural Center. The Supple family, uh, Rick and Rosine Supple, really forged a great relationship. And they were one of the couple that really was into the whole charitable thing in Palm Springs and supporting the community and so forth. And they're both in their 90s now. And what they did a couple, several years ago is they took the Camelot Theaters, which is a beautiful theater. It has three theaters in it, and they have a big one that I use for the Film Noir Festival. And then they have smaller ones, and they were able to turn it into a nonprofit, and they donated the theater to the city of Palm Springs. So it's now called the Palm Springs Cultural Center. And the big theater was named after them. But uh, my relationship with the Supples, who brought me on to continue to produce and grow the festival back in 08 has just been fabulous. And um, you talked about uh, living across the, growing up across the street from John Ford in the early days when we used to have guests like Jane Russell and Tony Curtis and people like that. And people would just show up that lived in Palm Springs that would just walk in there and come up to you and say, hey, how you doing? I mean, I still have a picture of my wife and Mickey Spillane with his arm, their arms around each other looking for our car, <laughs> you know, after after an all night. And people like Ann Savage and Kevin McCarthy and Mala Powers. And, uh, and I really uh, got to know a lot of these people as well as making friends in the community. And uh, so I've never, I haven't lived in Palm Springs, but it's certainly close to my heart. For sure. I mean, I feel like Hollywood, you know, you have like the TCM festival and while you're there, you can see where a lot of the films were made. But if you go to a place like Palm Springs, you see where a lot of the stars lived and had fun. Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I had, uh, I had Jacqueline White out there one year and we're sitting in, I think the, around the movie colony. And she starts telling me a story about how she came to visit here and w- was was with Cary Grant and all these other people back like in the late 40s and so forth and uh, would tell you when you get people in a relaxed mode, which Palm Springs is, you don't have traffic, you don't have valet parking to go eat a hamburger. Uh, it, it's not Los Angeles. And so uh, one of the features of the festival that Arthur started that I continued and built on is that I'll always have four or five guest stars. And when you get people in a relaxed environment where they can just hang out in the lobby afterwards and talk to people and the audience there is so appreciative and respectable. In L.A., it's more like, okay, I'm done and I got to figure out how to get through traffic or get home or get to the west side or or whatever. Uh, the vibe there in the desert is just completely different. And the experience there at the festival, I mean, I think the Camelot Theater is the best place to watch them for an adult to watch a movie. There are two bars. There's an elevator. There's I was going to say that. That's how the Camelot is famous That from what I've heard, like, because they were really the first ones in the Valley to do like the being able to drink while you're watching a film. And now that's kind of everywhere. But they were really I mean, the first it, ones to do it's it. It's fabulous. It's absolutely fabulous. I mean, two years ago, I had Sarah Karloff and uh, some of her guests, and we had lunch up there. And then on Mother's Day, what better movie to show than The Body Snatcher with her dad digging up cadavers <laughs> on Mother's Day? And then uh, she brought some home movies of herself and her dad when she was a little girl and she narrated those and then she brought a video of her father's last interview talking about his career Bella Lugosi and so forth and then we showed a 
really gorgeous 35 millimeter print from Warner Brothers of the Body Snatcher. And you, you can't replace stuff like that. You can't when you have people. I mean, I had Ernest Borgnine there 10 years ago. And uh, if you don't mind, I just want to tell this story about Borgnine because it really gives you the vibe. He came down with uh, a friend of his uh, who appeared in the, um, the Wild Bunch, who's I'm having a senior moment and his name escapes me. And so we the, the sponsor hotel that year was the Hilton. So we have lunch there and I arranged for lunch and we were at lunch for four hours with Borgnine. And everybody telling stories. And then Julie Garfield was one of my guests. She came there. Other people joined. And each person was taking time telling a story. And I kind of wish there had been a camera there because it was just unbelievably funny, uh, censorable as hell. (laughs) You know, Uh, uh, but uh, it was terrific. And then we showed the movie that night, Pay or Die. And Ernie and I did the Q&A afterwards, which was a discussion. It really wasn't a Q&A. And he talked about growing up in Hartford for Connecticut. His father was a barber and his father getting a black hand note because the movie Pay or Die is where he portrays a uh, real life uh, New York cop around the turn of the 20th century, uh, Lieutenant Petrosino. And it was very the movie was very special to him, which is why he came and did this. And then afterwards, we had a reception, and Borgnine's like, let me wait in line so I can meet everybody. I mean, he was just the nicest, most accommodating guest ever. And I had June Lockhart the next night, so I got to introduce them and sit with them at a table for two hours, listening to discussion and stories. And uh, it's just experiences like that. You can't put a, uh, a monetary value on. It's, it's really fabulous experience. And I'm really glad that the festival, which is scheduled in May and was scheduled this year from May 7th to the 10th, I've been able to reschedule it for December 3rd through the 6th of 2020. So fingers crossed that by December, we will all be able to foregather again in the dark to see classic movies with uh, some of the people that were involved. What you're telling me is that there's a possibility that I might have a classic film festival to finally enjoy before this year is out. Uh, absolutely. And- it is. It has been officially rescheduled for December 3rd through the 6th at Palm Springs at the Palm Springs Cultural Center and the Camelot Theater. This is our 21st year wow. of doing the festival, and it has grown. I have people coming from Australia and Canada every year, and it has become, it's become kind of a you know, I'm not trying to strut while I'm sitting down at my desk talking to you, but it, it has become kind of a world-class event. I have, in addition to myself as the producer host, I have Eddie Muller there, the czar of noir and my compadre in noir for many years. I have Foster Hirsch, who is a, a close friend and a very eminent film scholar. And we usually handle introducing the films. And the festival starts on a Thursday with an opening night. And then there's four films on Friday four on Saturday and three on Sunday. And it's a great weekend. I usually have authors, people signing books, uh, raffles, events, interviews. uh, And to me, there's nothing better than watching a classic movie with a martini in your hand. (laughs) You know, so it's it's a lot of fun. And if uh, things work out and we do hold the festival as scheduled on December 3rd through the 6th, uh, I hope to see all of you there. Yeah, and it would be a great reason for me to finally get Foster Hirsch on my podcast. I have his email. and We have chatted about him doing this and just, again, scheduling has not been my friend. So this would be a great oh, yeah. time well, to Foster, find Foster and I are good friends. And uh, uh, next time I talk to him, I will... Uh, I'll mention your podcast to him and and so forth, but he's uh, yeah yeah he was he was the fine uh, fine mediator that helped me get my Carol Baker interview. So yeah, he well, is, he, yeah, he in fact he interviewed Carol Baker there one year. He did, yeah, yeah. Yes, he did. So um, yeah, Foster Foster knows is known Carol Baker for years. So he's great. The festival's great, and it's uh, we we usually have the Film Noir Foundation merchandise table there, and we have giveaways and all kinds of stuff. And it's really 
uh, a great weekend. You don't have to worry about parking, traffic, where to get something to eat, anything. And I start the first movies at 10 o'clock in the morning. So, you know, they roll up the sidewalks kind of early there, folks, you know, and then you end up, I, I've ended up sitting in a hotel lobby with people <laughs> like Stu Whitman, God rest his soul, he's gone, or Joan Evans talking about her godmother, Joan Crawford, and growing up with Joan <laughs> and all of these stories. So it's, it's a classic film aficionado's paradise. It sounds like a bucket list one for me, for sure. I mean, especially living in Palm Springs. I'm like amazed at myself that I haven't been yet, but I definitely want to go. We, I look forward to seeing you there. To go off of that, you know, you, you are actually much like Leonard Moulton. You know, you are a huge, before you started writing and doing all of that, like cataloging films that aired on television prior to, you know, the, the rush of streaming that we we ha- enjoy now, uh, you know, what, what inspired you to really want to get into cataloging and discussing films before there was this big push for it that we see now? Well, I have to say without dating myself too much, uh, b- beyond streaming, I'm, I'm a pre-cable person. <laughs> I mean, this was <laughs> like when you had an antenna on your roof, <laughs> you know? Uh, uh, so, but yeah, the reason that I got into it was because uh, I grew up as a kid sitting around the dinner table, listening to my mother, my grandfather, my grandparents, all of us uh, talking about movies and talking about show business gossip and all this other stuff. I mean, I remember being taken to Radio City Music Hall because I grew up in New Jersey. Uh, my, my, uh, my, my mother and met my father out of the service and they got married at the Hollywood Lutheran Church in 46. And then he had to figure out a way to make money. So he became an actuary and ended up working for Prudential Insurance Company, which was home in Newark. So they they moved back east. And my grand grandparents, my maternal grandparents, they had moved back east because they joined the Signal Corps during the war. And they ended up in Queens where the museum of the uh, moving images now, and they were cutting film for the, for the army for film as editors. And then my grandfather started a business called Corelli Jacobs Inc., which is still in stacked in Manhattan. And he would compose and dub music for commercials, movies, everything. So I grew up around all of this. And my brother was also a huge film fan. My older brother, David, who now divides his time between England, where his wife lives, and New Jersey, uh, although he's kind of stuck in England right now, what with uh, the, the pandemic. But at any rate, my brother and I became, you know, sinists, and we would be watching movies. And my mother would say, look, there's Mary Emery. And, you know, Mary Emery was the, the actress who played Ricky Ricardo's mother on I Love Lucy that was in a million bit parts. And she was a friend of the family. I used to sit on her lap. And so I grew up like knowing a lot of the character actors and bit players that were in my my mother's or my grandmother's social circle back here in Hollywood. And so my brother and I watched movies on TV and we started cataloging stuff and making lists and all this other stuff. And my brother actually wrote several articles for Leonard Malton's first magazine, Film Fan Monthly, that Leonard published out of his house in Teaneck, New Jersey, <laughs> back in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, so uh, I, I grew up, my brother and I grew up doing this. I kind of grew up in the movie business, hearing about it, learning about it, watching movies. And it's always been part of my life. Do you have all that stuff still still saved, those early lists and everything? No, 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 no. No, I don't. No, I, don't. I, I unfortunately, when I got drafted and went into the military, I think my father ended up throwing out a bunch of stuff, like my comic books and my other stuff. And I, when I came home and discovered that this stuff had been gone, I was quite unhappy about that. But that's lost through the years. And quite frankly, now at this point in my life, I have a house that is filled with books. It's filled with vintage movie posters that I collect. It's filled with photographs of uh, eight by tens of movie people that when people come in, they don't even know who these people are. Like 
why do you have an autographed picture of Canada Lee on your wall next to Anne Sheridan? <laughs> uh, when I wrote the book on uh, Charles McGraw, I got very friendly with his widow. And when she passed away, I got all these scripts of Charles McGraw's and stills and all this stuff. And I have, you know, a garage that's half filled with stuff. So now I need to start thinking about what I'm going to do with it because I don't want to burden my daughter with, <laughs> you know, trying to figure all this out. But uh, I've saved quite a bit, but I haven't saved everything. It's like my house where people assume, oh, that picture by your bed, is that your grandmother? No, that's Veronica Lake, but I will take that compliment. Well, yeah. I mean, I have I have picture, a couple pictures of my mother, who was quite, quite glamorous back in the day. And the pictures were taken by the photographer Edmund Bauer Hesser, who took the first pictures of Harlow and Griffith Park and all of that. And Hesser was a friend of my mother's family, because her uncle used to own all the land near the Chatsworth Reservoir. So back in the late 20s and the 30s, my mother and my Aunt Paula and my grandmother would go out there to visit Uncle Roy. And in those days, driving from like the flats of Beverly Hills to Northridge was kind of like going with Roy Chapman Andrews to the flaming cliffs of the Gobi Desert. To, to drive out to the valley. It was very, it was very rural. And he rented cabanas and Hesser rented uh, one of those cabanas. So she knew Hesser and he took pictures of the family and so on and so forth. And uh, my mother, one of her favorite stories was meeting John Barrymore, W.C. Fields, John Decker and John Carradine at a party. And Carradine wanted to sculpt my mother in the nude. She was about 16, and my grandmother quickly steered her away from John Carradine and met John Barrymore, who was carrying a suitcase around filled with booze. He was on his last legs then. And there's a couple Barrymore stories that uh, I'll, I'll spare you <laughs> <laughs> that, are, that are somewhat risque about his behavior near the end. But yeah, so, um, and I still have a lot of these pictures. Uh, Hesser threw out pictures of like portraits he shot of Mary Pickford and threw them in the trash and my mother rescued him. And I still have some of that stuff as well. Well, before we get into talking about Alan K. Rohde, author, uh, you know, has have you ever wanted to write about your your mother or your upbringing or or your family in in a book proper? Is that just best left? You know, um, these amazing stories. Well, I I didn't write a book, but what I did do is my mother passed away in January of two thousand sixteen. And she was like the family archivist. So it took my brother and I three days just to go through the photos. Wow. And it was, it just, she had, and it was all out of order. It, there'd be like a picture of Jack Carson autographed next to a picture of our dog or me and the Navy saluting or something. I mean, there was no rhyme or reason or no organization. So we sorted through all of that. But what I did do is if you go to my blog, which is called One Way Street, and it's at www.alankroady.com, I wrote a long, long blog piece called Dinners with Alphonse that focused on my mother's stepfather, who I grew up as my grandfather, and what my life was like as a kid growing up in a family, around a family. My mother's family always reminded me, looking back, it was kind of like the road company of you can't take it with you, <laughs> with, you know, a six foot nine great uncle that fought Jack Dempsey and a five foot aunt who spent her entire life trying to become a movie star and bankrupted herself. Uh, so all of these characters. So I wrote this long blog entry. It's on the Internet. If you Google me or go to my website. And it has a lot of pictures of like Uncle Roy and my mother and a lot of my grandfather's career and working with Stokowski and people like that. And the reason I wrote it, and it, it did take me some time, and I had to consult with my brother who has more of a memory for certain things because he was older, is because I realized that my brother and I are the last people that remember all this stuff. And it's one of the unusual things. When you get to a certain age, you realize that all of this stuff about great uncles and aunts and the people you knew and the stories, 
that you're like the last person that either met these people or knew about it and so forth. So I wanted to write it down before I either shined it on or forgot about it or postponed it. So there's a long blog entry that tells all about my family and growing up and all of this stuff that's on my website that's that's like several pages long and I put photographs in there. So uh, I, I direct you toward that, but uh, I haven't yet. I still have a life to live, so I haven't gotten to the point where I'm going to sit there and write my memoirs or anything like that. <laughs> well, uh, well, we have to talk about your amazing books, uh, and they're all they're they're amazing. Um, I'm throwing that that adjective out there right now. Um, you've written two: uh, Charles McGraw, film noir tough guy, and Michael Curtiz, a life in film. What drew you to these subjects? I mean, Curtiz, your, your book is the first major like comprehensive biography of his life but how did you select your subjects well the mcgraw book was really a case of serendipity i always liked him i always thought he always stood out for me because he was he was tough and he had that that gravel voice and was very unique and I started like watching everything and I'd see him on television and so forth. And I remember as a kid going to see Spartacus and when Kirk Douglas killed him and, and drowned him in this vat of what appeared to be Campbell's chunky beef soup uh, in Spartacus, I remember feeling disappointed <laughs> that he was died. So that may be fodder for a psychiatrist to, to analyze me. But nevertheless, um, his death, uh, in 1980, was apparently he fell in the shower and and cut himself and bled to death. And I always thought that was a bizarre way of dying. So I started doing research on him. At that time, I was uh, uh, we were still living in San Diego, and I found out through checking mortgage records that the house he passed away in was still owned by the person who originally bought it. And then the other thing is, is back in those days, you could order a death certificate from the county of uh, Los Angeles. You could order it. And now I think you have to be a, a member of the family or whatever. They've changed it. But I ordered his death certificate and I noticed that the person who signed it was someone named Mildred Black, not his wife. And so I thought that was curious. So at any rate, long story short, I wrote a letter to Mildred Black, who was the owner of the house in what was called North Hollywood. And now I believe it's uh, either Studio City or Valley Village. And I said, hey, I'm Alan Rohde and I'm doing research for a book. And, and I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I just was pursuing this. And I said, I'd like to know more about Charles McGraw. So I sent the letter and I never got an answer. So uh, when I came up for the Film Noir Festival, uh, this was when it first started and when I met Eddie Muller. I think this was 1999, 2000, around that time. I, I came up and I went, I drove by the house with a friend and the house was like a little old fashioned bungalow in Studio City, but you could tell someone owned it. And then the next time I came up, I went there during the day. And there were some guys working there in the yard. And I called over the retaining wall and I said, uh, hey, is Miss Black here? And she says, yeah, just a minute, Millie. And this nice older lady with the sun visor on and shorts came says, yeah, what can I do for you? And I said, I'm Alan Rohde. And I wrote you this letter about Charles McGraw. And she stopped and she said, reached out, grabbed my hand and said, so you're the guy that wanted to know about Charlie. I've been hoping you'd show up. Why don't you come in and have a glass of lemonade? And that was how this whole thing with Charles McGraw started, where I got to know Millie. I got to know McGraw's daughter. I got to know uh, a wonderful guy named Bobby Hoy, who was a stuntman actor in Hollywood, who was in the high chaparral and a bunch of movies. And, and Bobby, uh, Bobby and I became close friends. He's, he's now deceased. And I started learning more and more about McGraw and his life that was that turned out to be quite tragic on how he died and how he became an alcoholic, which really kind of destroyed his, his career and his life. And uh, so I said, you know, I need to write about this. And so that was how the Charles McGraw book happened. 
And and so it kind of, you know, that was how that book happened. The Curtiz book was different. I had uh, Pat McGilligan, who is a esteemed biographer and a, and a friend now and a colleague. Uh, he and I were talking and he says, what are you working on? What are you going to write about? And I said, I don't know. I'm thinking about writing about a director. And he goes, why don't you write about a director? So I thought about a couple things. I thought about Jules Dassin, who I had corresponded with, and I had some letters from Julie. But uh, I also I realized that, number one, there were other people who knew him better. Number two, I would have to figure out how to spend time in Greece and France, where Julie spent a lot of his life. And he lived to be, I think he was like 97 or 98 when he passed away. And so I came up with Curtiz because no one had really written a book about him and beyond all the anecdotes and things like that, there wasn't really a comprehensive book. And yet he directed all these movies, these great movies. And I think one of the things I wrote in the book's prologue was that we celebrate each Yuletide with White Christmas. We celebrate the 4th of July with Yankee Doodle Dandy. And we fall in love all over again every time we see Casablanca. But no one knows anything beyond these these anecdotes of him being a tyrant about the guy that made these movies. So uh, I put together a proposal and they loved it. And then it went on from there. And that took about that was an odyssey that took about like five years or almost six years. My recommendation on that is if you're going to write a biography about someone that directed 181 movies, prepare yourself because <laughs> it's a long haul. But that's how those two books happen. That's definitely one of the questions I had because, I mean, Michael Curtiz is such a fascinating figure and it's shocking but serendipitous for you that this is the first um, and kind of definitive look at his work. But I don't think I hadn't been fully aware of not I, I had grasped the idea of kind of the range of films that he took on, but the volume is bonker. It's like incomprehensible to think of someone directing that many films and then also having so many not just classics within them, but beloved top of the canon makes all the lists. Anyway, as a writer, that is an undertaking because I can't imagine cataloging all that, not to mention someone who started their career in Europe and, you know, undoubtedly how many films were lost, like the silent, anyway. Most of his, most of his silent films were lost. But, I mean, you're talking about someone who directed their first film in 1912 and their last film in 1961. And he directed... Seven, at least 70 films before he even came to Warner Brothers in 1926. So I was fortunate in that I established a relationship with a film historian writer named Laszlo Kristen, who is Hungarian, who lives in Budapest. And I, I was able to go back there and spend some time with him in Budapest. And he showed me all these places where Curtiz worked and and Budapest, by the way, is a beautiful city. It, it's it's. I will back that up. I, it's one of my very favorite cities in the world. It is just it is just wonderful, and I did that as part of being in uh, going to the um, Portononi Silent Film Festival. Uh, I went from Budapest, and then we went to Venice, and then up to Portononi, and I was in what they call a presidium discussing Curtiz because they were showing. Uh, Cortez before Cortez, a bunch of his silent movies, and I was able to participate in that. So anyway, but going back to Laszlo, we continued a relationship, and he was my researcher on the ground. He was like reading and translating 100-year-old movie magazine, and Hungary had this really uh, wonderful period from like 1912 through the end of World War One, of this great movie industry. And Curtiz was the pioneer. He ran his own studio. He was, in effect, kind of like the David O. Selznick or Thalberg of a studio that was cobbled together known as Phoenix Film. And he was making like five, six, seven films a year. And whilst after, before and after serving in the Austro-Hungarian army and getting 
supposedly getting wounded and so on and so forth. And, and so he was incredibly prolific before he came to Warner Brothers. After he came to Warner Brothers, he stayed there from 1926 and officially left the studio in 1954. So uh, there is no other director who established the style and brand of a American movie studio more than Michael Curtiz did. So I found him to be a fascinating character. He certainly had some characteristics that were not praiseworthy or pleasant. He was, he could be a, a, a dictator. He could yell and scream and pick on people. And I also found out he had this diverse family <laughs> of, I, I think he had, uh, let's see, he had five children by five different women out of wedlock. And the last child he had is younger than me. So, so you have someone who was born in 1886 and had these relationships and so forth. And that kind of defined his life. And he kept a lot of this for obvious reasons, hidden from the press, hidden from everybody. And I was able to uncover a lot of this. That's it, very, his whole family situation was very, very complicated and very, very complex. So he was a fascinating subject to write about. And the other thing that I enjoyed is the assumptions about him that he was some vocational mechanic of the studio system that was handed a script and just shot what was in the script couldn't be more inaccurate. And going through all the studio correspondence of all of his great movies and how the movies were made, there were constant battles between Curtiz and, and Zanuck and Hal Wallace and Jack Warner on movies that he thought would be were his and considered them his, but they were really theirs. It's so interesting thinking of I'm so sorry to jump in, but um that is such an insulting kind of uh, slight to say, you know, I and I, I get there's like there's journeyman actors, there's journeyman directors, but also there's artistry imbued in what everyone's doing. And the idea that anyone could look at Curtis's work and say, even if it was just I was handed a script and then directed it, what all goes into directing, even if he hadn't fought for certain casting or developed the script, which I know he had. But even then, like all you're doing is putting your own vision on things. Some people are doing it better than others, but it's such a funny way to kind of belittle the process. And I'm sure for the studios and, and especially for him with his long history with Jack Warner in particular, and with being someone who was making all this money for them, but maybe a little thorn in their side at the same time. It's such a funny thing of them doing dismissive wording like that to keep directors in their place. You see it so often with actors, but he's such a... Well, I, I, think, I think it wasn't... I, I don't think the dismissiveness was necessarily done by the people he worked with. You got to remember that that organizations then, particularly movie studios, it was all top-down management. You know, you had bosses. I mean, you still have bosses, but you you had, it was a very hierarchical syst, uh, system in those days. And Curtiz understood that. He understood the star system and made it work to his advantage. I think one reason that his reputation became what it used to be is because of in the early 60s, the auteur theory gained full flight with the French and people like Bogdanovich and Rick, Richard Schickel and all these people started writing about John Ford. And the other thing is Curtis died in 62. So he didn't have a chance to go to retrospectives of his work and embellish and sit there with interviews or be like Raoul Walsh with a cowboy hat telling stories about stealing John Barrymore's corpse and all this other stuff. And he probably wouldn't have done that even if he was still around because he, he wasn't really a credit grabber per se. He was a control. He wanted to control his movies and fought for that. And he wanted the actors to be his marionettes until he finally understood that it wasn't Europe anymore. And James Cagney had more heft than he did. And he understood how to work that. But he wanted control of his set, control of his movies. 
And he would change stuff because he knew once the movie was shot and it was in the hands of the editor or Hal Wallace or the front office, then his opportunity to do anything with it was over. There was no such thing as final cut in those days. Eventually, I think Hawks and and a couple others would get it into the 40s and so forth. But back when he started in the 20s and 30s in Hollywood, there was really, that was something that didn't happen. So in short, though, in response, I think his reputation suffered by the people who wrote about film and came up with this whole auteur theory. Because if you really look at it, the auteur theory is real. I don't deny that it exists, but applying it unilaterally, uh, like Andrew Saris did in his book, to Hollywood during the 20s, 30s, 40s, into the 50s is, is really kind of ridiculous by ascribing it to the, the sole uh, author of the film to one person. Well, I want to throw out that Alan is, if anybody's followed me long enough, Alan was one of the first interviews that I did before TCM when his book came out. I did an awesome interview with Alan about Curtiz and all of that. And then I think the next day I went to TCM for the film festival and Alan was there introducing the Seawolf. And Alan had talked up Curtiz so much and the book was so amazing that I said, hey, I'll go see this movie that I've never heard of purely because it's Alan and Curtiz. It was a match made in heaven. And if you've heard the story that I've recounted numerous times, I became violently ill with what ended up being a cold, and I became obsessed with John Garfield. So I blame Alan for all, not the illness, <laughs> but the obsession with John Garfield that has continued to this day. I lay at Alan's feet uh, because his book was so amazing, and Curtis really knew how to make some movies that would appeal to me in very strange ways. So I had to share that story. <laughs> John Garfield and Curtiz, and I go into this in the book, in many ways, they were very similar. They were both Jewish. They both came up from very, very humble, hard scrabble beginnings. And they both had the soul of an artist. And that was usually Curtiz's thing where, you know, how come you're shooting so many angles? I, I read countless memos from Wallace and Warner, like you're wasting film, you're taking too long. I mean, Jack Warner's guidance to almost anyone who ever made a movie for him could be captured in two words, and that is hurry up. You know, Jack Warner was not an artistic man. Hal Wallace was, but Hal Wallace also was a producer, and he had to, he was responsible for budget and, and a lot of different things. And he... I made the comment in the book that Hal Wallace could squeeze a nickel hard enough to make the buffalo keel over, and he could. And so there was that. But Garfield and Curtiz were really simpatico. And I mean, if you look at a film like Four Daughters, that was it, nominated. It is my favorite Oscar. movie. It is one of the it best is movies. a lovely movie, but it's kind of a Middle America before World War II, very saccharine drama about Claude Rains and his musical daughters and Claude Rains a musician and so on and so forth. And then Garfield enters the picture and the whole movie changes into something more complicated, darker and so forth. And he really knew how to work with Garfield and Garfield's second to the last picture, the breaking point uh, that I, I think I called it lost classic or missing classic in the book. I wrote pretty much a chapter about it, is one of the great post-war films. I think it's Curtiz's best post-World War II movie. And Garfield in that movie, playing Harry Morgan, more to the way Hemingway wrote it. I mean, if you watch To Have and To Have Not, that's basically Casablanca put on the coast of France. It has absolutely very little to do with with Hemingway's book. But uh, I think... Curtiz and the screenwriter, uh, Renald McDougall, and Jerry Wald, the producer, who is a guy that should have a book written about him that hasn't, and Garfield. It's just a brilliant, brilliant movie. And the whole relationship between Garfield and Juano Hernandez is really something special that you did not see in movies made in 1949 and 1950. 
one of the great movies. And I'm, I'm glad that between my book and programming it at Noir City, Eddie doing that, and also the film being restored and Criterion bringing it out on Blu-ray, and they shot a, a 15-minute or so uh, video of me talking about Curtiz and the movie and all this stuff has brought that film into the forefront because I think it's one of the great American films that didn't get a lot of heft. But Garfield was a special actor. And uh, if you ever come over to my house, as soon as you walk in the front door, the first thing you see in the foyer is a painting of Garfield that his daughter Julie did that's there with him with him holding a cigarette. And, uh, uh, I've, I've been fortunate to, to talk to Julie and I've we've talked about her her paintings and stuff and I was joking with her. I'm like, I need to hurry up and become a millionaire so that I can afford to have a Julie Garfield painting of her dad somewhere in my house. I will force the issue with my family and just be like, we're hanging it here. Well, I tell you what, what my, what I say about John Garfield is before there was Marlon Brando and James Dean, there was John Garfield. Amen. People, yes. People no question. That. People tend to forget about that. I did not have Alan on here purely to talk about John Garfield, people. Uh, I know somebody's listening thinking that's exactly why. That helped, but it was not the the reason. Uh, but but Alan, I mean, do you are there is there a subject that you love to write about, but just because of lack of information or, or some logistical reason you you haven't or you don't see it happening? Is there like a... Yeah, I was, uh, I was very interested in writing a uh, comprehensive biography on Daryl F. Zanuck. And I have a ton of information. Wow. But that's another big book that is going to uh, take a great deal of time. And my time is not unlimited anymore. So I, I really have to focus and I need to get paid. And I'm not, you know, someone I worked for a long time ago, I said, you know, this is a really good idea if we do this. And he said, Alan, only the birds sing for free. So uh, it's, it's kind of like if I'm going to invest four or five years of my life into something, then there, there needs to be some remuneration in it. And so far there hasn't been. But I'm working on another book. I can't tell you the subject, but it is a woman. I want to write a book about a woman. I've, I've done two books on men, and I, there's a woman that I want to write about that I am going to write about. And I also uh, have a couple things coming out on the Blu-ray commentary circuit, which is another thing that I, I enjoy doing. And I have one coming out, which can't go up on social media and this can't go up until uh, it's announced by Warner Brothers, but they are going to put out the Blu-ray of the Mystery of the Wax Museum that has been restored. And it'll have my commentary and Scott McQueen's commentary. And there's also a uh, featurette that uh, of, of me doing a discussion with Victoria Riskin talking about her mom, Faye Ray and her dad to a lesser extent. So that should be coming out in May. But again, I want Warner Brothers to have the opportunity to announce that. So don't go on social media and don't put this thing up until that happens. Yeah, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to X, you know, the, the if we have to, yeah, ladies, just don't announce it on anything. And then um, hopefully by the time this goes up, Warner's will have already announced it, but if yeah, uh, yeah, but don't don't put that out on social media. And if Warner's announce it, then then this podcast goes up after that, then that's fine. The other thing I have coming out is a company named Via Vision is putting out a all region Blu-ray uh, restored of Sorry Wrong Number with Barbara Stanwyck and Burt Lancaster. Uh, which is a terrific movie directed by Anatoly Litvak and produced by Hal Wallace's production company once he left Warner Brothers and set up shop at Paramount. And uh, I do the Blu-ray commentary track through the movie, and I believe they got a intro filmed introduction by the czar of noir himself, Eddie Muller. So that's going to be coming out as well. And the other thing is, is Michael Curtiz's uh, Life and Film is going to be out in paperback next year. Which I'm really, I'm really happy about that because the book is big and it is expensive, but I know the paperback will be a lesser, uh, a lesser cost. And I'm also 
writing some new material that has come my way about Curtis. One of the things that always happens is if you write a biography, then after it's published, people come up and say, oh, you know, he was my neighbor and he left all these pictures in his garage and he got, you know, or did you know that blah, blah, blah. And that just happens. That's the way it works. But I've had some very interesting and quite poignant information come my way about Curtis and his family and so forth. So uh, I'm going to include that new material in the second edition, the paperback edition, that will be coming out sometime in 2021, hopefully. And so I'm working on that. So I'm, I'm trying to stay busy. I like staying busy. I like working. And particularly now, you know, there's only so many books you can read and movies you can watch. And work gives us all purpose, or at least it gives me purpose. So I'm happy and consider myself to be fortunate and blessed that my family is okay and everyone is surviving okay. And, and I'm still able to, to do meaningful work. I know you can't uh, say who the woman is, but is it a woman that has had something written about her previously? No. Ooh, okay. This is so exciting. I can't wait to find out. I have to say, too, um, Mystery of the Wax Museum is probably one of my favorite Curtis films. So I'm so excited for that commentary. You have no idea. I saw that. I don't know if they actually went through with it because I think it was around the time that all this started, but I saw that they were going to show that restoration at the Museum of Modern Art. And I really had wanted to go. They did. They actually, they actually did show it at the Museum of Modern Art. I think they, they were going to show it at TCM and that may be pushed to next year. Yeah. Oh, that's, that would be such a dream. Oh, my goodness. I can't even. I have to say that the restoration, I've seen it in the, the screening room and so forth, and it's it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. It's a gorgeous. I saw when MoMA introduced or when they um, announced that they were going to do it, they had like a shot of the before restoration and after. And I cannot wait because I think that two strip Technicolor look is so pretty at it, to begin with, a restoration, it's going to look incredible. I can't wait for that. Oh, it looks, it looks fabulous. And the other thing the other thing that is fabulous and that is more important to me than sometimes the visual part of a restored film, whether it be digital or photochemical restoration, is the soundtrack. And the soundtrack on this is you hear things – and I've seen this movie many times, and I was hearing things that I didn't hear before, which is phenomenal. And uh, I'll never forget going to see when they restored Dracula and all of the universal horror films that came out in this really deluxe, handsome Blu-ray set. They had a screening at the Academy, and they had the restored Dracula and Bride of Frankenstein. And to see Dracula come up on the screen without that scratchy soundtrack with Swan Lake being played in the background where you could, it was actually clean. You could hear everything. That was as much or more of a revelation to me than watching the film uh, beautifully restored without scratches and so forth. Although my old uh, colleague, Bob O'Neill, who used to be the archivist at Universal, I was sitting next to him and I said, I said, gee, it looks great. And he goes, yeah, if only it would jiggle a little bit, <laughs> like like it would look like a real 35 millimeter film. But you you take what you can get. And, and certainly uh, some of these restorations based on what I grew up watching on TV. I remember watching King Kong on TV, a million dollar movie on Channel 9 in New York. And they go cut to a commercial as... Robert Armstrong was saying, they're going to have to think up a whole bunch of new adjectives when I come back. And then they cut to a commercial. And then when the film came back, they were at Skull Island. <laughs> you know, they, they like lifted like seven or 10 minutes out of the film to fit in it in the time slot with commercials. So things are much different now. <laughs> well, thankfully. Alan, I think we're, we're coming to the end of our time. We don't want to take up your, your entire afternoon. But once more, what should fans be on the lookout for in the coming months? And where can fans find and get in touch with you 
read all your work, follow your journey, all of that. Feel free to show. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, people can get a hold of me if they go to my website, www.allenkrody.com. And there's an email thing. There's a comment. There's my blog. There's my schedule. There's a, a video of me that just got posted a couple days ago wearing Charles McGraw's old fedora and a T-shirt that says directed by Michael Curtiz talking about the reschedule of the Arthur Lyons Film Noir Festival and some of the other things that uh, I've discussed on your podcast. So that is the place to go. And I also recommend people go to the Film Noir Foundation website, www.filmnoirfoundation.org. And if you go to the video link there or the video link on my website, you will see a lot of my discussions I've had over the years with uh, Ernest Borgnine and three with Norman Lloyd and um, uh, David Ladd and uh, a whole bunch of different people that uh, we've had filmed over the last 10 years. So uh, I recommend everyone to go to my website and the Fillmore Foundation website. Yeah, and keep an eye out for all of Alan's amazing audio commentaries that are be going to be coming out. And anytime your name shows up on something, it's worth it, in my opinion. That's the ticklish business. Uh, that's, that's very nice of you to say that and very flattering and uh, keep those cards and letters coming in. Yeah. Well, Dre Clark, what about you? Where can fans find and get in touch with you and find your podcast? Um, I'm on Twitter at the Drea Clark and my other podcast is on Maximum Fun and it's called Who Shot Ya? And it was a true delight talking to Alan Rohde. And if anything, you can come back because I have a whole theory of how Michael Curtiz's wife, Bess Meredith, was the prototype for the relationship that Bob Fosse and Gwen Verdon had. Well, that's, 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 very, that's very interesting. And the whole Bess Meredith-Curtiz uh, relationship, we didn't have time to get into that. But I will say that without her, his career would be very, very, very different. She was integral to what he did in America. Absolutely no doubt. She was his collaborator and helped him enormously, scripts and so forth. I'm very grateful that as his biographer, you knew that. Um, yeah, that's where to find me, Kristen. And Samantha Ellis, what about you? Well, my site is musingsofaclassicfilmatic.com. You can find my Cooking with the Stars posts every month on classicmoviehub.com. I, I want to see if I can find some Michael Curtiz recipes because I love Hungarian food. So that would be very interesting. And you can follow me on Twitter at Classic Film Geek. And I second him coming back. We should do like a whole John Barrymore gossip episode. Because John is my favorite Barrymore. There, there are, uh, I think there are two or three Barrymore stories, but the uh, there they range from PG to R rated. I mean, I'm personally <laughs> so, fine with that. I don't know about the public, the listeners, but <laughs> yeah, I don't know either. I don't know either. You want to contact me offline? I I'll be happy to. Uh, I'll be happy to. That sounds those incredible. Stories. In fact, I think, wait a minute. In fact, if you go to that uh, blog post, Dinners with Alphonse, I think there's a couple of them Ooh, there. If you that, read that sounds amazing. I'm definitely going to do that. <laughs> and you can get in touch with the podcast. Uh, send us questions about Alan, Film Noir, John Barrymore, Michael Curtiz, any of that. You can always email them to ticklishbizgmail.com. You can find me online on Twitter at journeys underscore film. And my classic film blog is journeysinclassicfilm.com. You can actually find my original interview with Alan written up there. And as always, I am writing about TV over at IndieWire. So check that out. And if you want to listen to more Ticklish Business, we're available wherever you get your podcasts, either directly at ticklishbusiness.podbean.com, Stitcher Radio, Player FM, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. If you're listening via Apple Podcasts, help us out and leave us a rating and a review 
And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz. And if you want to learn more about the podcast, get special pins, get access to all sorts of interviews. Alan's interview is also on there. The first one he did, as well as a bunch of other bonus shows, then support ticklish business via Patreon. We have our TCM Classic Film Festival 2020 pins that we did make for everybody that'll be going out to all the patrons soon. And we have our special $10 tier called The Taylor, which allows you to guest on a future podcast of your choice. So check that out. You can also listen to our bonus podcast that we do based on a true podcast and double features. We have a couple episodes of each on there now. So that's patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. Next time we also... Hopefully we'll have another celebrity guest, but we don't want to announce it before it's confirmed. So it's going to be another mystery episode, but we thank Alan K. Rohde for joining us today and we will see you all next time. Bye.